This morning's message is called The Ministry of Wisdom. As part of a thematic topic like speech or work, right, or relationships. But this morning we're looking at this chapter as a whole. And one of the things I've tried to do in the last two weeks is to unify a whole chapter together. The Proverbs are easy to speak on in a topical sense because you just go through and you pick all the verses of a subject and you wrap them together and you say, this is what the Bible says about this. And you talk about how Christ is the fulfillment of that. But I think there is something harder to find, absolutely, because I've preached on John, I've preached on other books. It's a lot harder to do this in the Proverbs than it is in even Ecclesiastes or, or the Gospel of John or Genesis. Ministry, I looked up the definition of ministry because that's a word we hear a lot in the church. And in fact, I'm going to preach on ministry next Sunday. Uh, we're going to learn more about that in detail next week. But this proverb is a fantastic primer because it speaks of the ministry of wisdom. The ministry of wisdom. Now, the definition of ministry, the one that, <clears throat> there's a few, but this is the one that aligns with uh, where we're going in this text. Ministry is a noun. It's also, it could be a verb, but it's a noun in this case. The person or thing through which something is accomplished. Ministry is a person or a thing through which something is, a, is accomplished. So, it's a matter of agency. What is the agent of accomplishment? What is the thing through which a thing is accomplished? One of the uh, important things for us to observe is, is how this is used in our political realm. Cabinet members are called cabinet ministers. They minister to an end. The minister of finance, his job is to spend more money than he has and does a great job of that. I'm sorry. Just the, the budget release just came out last week, right? Minister of Aboriginal Affairs. Their job is to accomplish something regarding the Aboriginal and Native peoples of Canada. It's to engage that community. Ministry of Transportation takes care of roads and logistics and things like that. There is an, there's a, they have a file, and their job is to accomplish something. Proverbs chapter 18 looks at the Ministry of Wisdom. If wisdom was a cabinet minister, what would wisdom be doing? That's really what chapter 18 in Proverbs is all about. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about wisdom as the Proverbs speaks of it, because what we've tried to show is that wisdom is not just the, the musings or the writings or the articles or the thoughts or the debates of people who are really smart and philosophical. Wisdom, according to the book of wisdom, needs to be practical. It needs to have implications for righteousness, equity, and justice, right? It's for wise dealing. It's for wise interactions. It's for wise life. So we see that in the book of Proverbs, in actually chapter 8, we see that the agency of wisdom, sorry, creation was done through the agency of wisdom. We see wisdom personified very likely the, a precursor to Christ, speaking of, I was there at the beginning when the Lord first formed the earth, when he set the footings of the earth. Wisdom was there as a companion to God. So we see wisdom as an agency of creation. We further see that exposited through uh, Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John, where he says, everything was made through Christ. There was not anything made that was not made through Jesus. And so we can see a connection there that in the Old Testament, the agent was wisdom. In the New Testament, we see that revealed as the agent 
being Jesus Christ. That's a side note, but the point is that wisdom was a very big part of the creation of all physical matter. So wisdom does, is not unconcerned with tangible realities, right? It was the first agent of creation. Jesus also coined a, a very profound phrase, and I thought it was a quote of the Old Testament, but I don't think it is. It's original on the lips of Christ when he says uh, in the book of Luke, wisdom is vindicated by all her children. And this is when he's being criticized by people for enjoying uh, wine and food when other disciples were fasting. So John's disciples were fasting. Jesus' disciples were eating and drinking like everything was normal. And they criticized Jesus and they said, what's your problem? Those guys fast. And Jesus says, hey, I could sing a song for you and you wouldn't dance and I could play a sad song for you and you wouldn't cry. Nothing's good enough for you. He said, but wisdom is vindicated by all her children. What does that mean? He meant that you can criticize somebody's lifestyle or their convictions, but the proof or the value of those convictions is shown in the results. In the results. And that's very important. When we analyze people's worldview or their convictions or their assertions about life, wisdom is not vindicated by the eloquence of words. Wisdom is vindicated by how does this actually work itself out in life? That's very important. What is the outcome of somebody's way of life? That's how you know whether or not wisdom was employed. doesn't matter how good what they say sounded. It matters whether or not they're living lives in accordance with God's word. That's what proves wisdom. It's the outcome, not the impression of the position. Very often, we're, very, uh, we're obsessed with impressions. When you look at political debates, they're always reduced to 45-second sound bites because it's all about the impression of what somebody said. Nobody's really, whether, nobody's really concerned whether or not a position actually has fruit in the real world. It's just a matter of how they make you feel. It's the impression of their position. But wisdom says, no, 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 no. It's the children of, of wisdom. It's the offspring. It's the outcome of wisdom that dictates whether or not something is good. Uh, one example that I was thinking of while I was writing this was, um, do you remember uh, Mike Pence? Well, he's still the vice president of the United States. But when he was... I can't remember if it was before the election or after, but he had, it came out that he had a policy, a personal policy, that he would never be alone with a woman <clears throat> who was not his wife. He would never be alone with a woman who was not his wife. Now you think, wow, here's a man of integrity and character and conviction. But what was the story? How was that story spun in the media, if you remember? He was called chauvinistic. He was called uh, lacking self-control and as basically radically outdated. They thought of three ways why this policy, this personal policy, was actually negative toward women, toward the country. I mean, it was totally spun as negative. Because how else could you criticize somebody? I mean, how do you call somebody chauvinistic when they refuse to be anywhere near a woman alone? I mean, right after this happened, the explosion of the Me, the Me Too movement took took hold. What was, what's, the ba what's the foundation of the Me Too movement? It's a man being alone with a woman. The, I mean, the Me Too movement doesn't exist unless you have men isolating women. Okay, so I'm not going to get all into that, but rather than look at the state of his marriage, which as far as I can tell is happy, he's still married, which you, you can't say that about the president's first wife. You can't say that about 
a ton of people in public office, but nobody ever criticizes the broken marriages and the broken relationships in the dysfunctional world. They criticize the guy who's got things together. So wisdom is vindicated by her children. Look at the outcome of his way of life. You may think, well, that's very stiff. That's very um, maybe old-fashioned, or maybe that's, you know, maybe that's out of touch. But what's the fruit of his wisdom? It's a good marriage. Wisdom is vindicated by all her children. So I would, I would call that a vindication for a man like Mike Pence or anybody, other, anybody else who applies wisdom in practical areas in their life so that there is a good outcome. That's wisdom. That's prudence. Wisdom, as I said, is only wise if it brings about meaningful progress and achievement of something. Hence the ministry of wisdom. Is there meaningful progress and achievement of some kind through the wisdom of God? I think chapter 18 lays out four major areas for us. But before we get into those areas, I want to talk a bit more about the context. This is our last message in Proverbs for a little while, and I really want to hammer this home, some of its context and how it applies to us. Proverbs was written by King Solomon of Israel. He was a king. He was a king who was charged with keeping God's law as the means of his rule. In other words, when you become king, you need some kind of rule book, right? You need some kind of instruction manual to say, well, how am I going to do this? How am I going to decide on what is right and wrong? And where am I going to take these people? It's kind of like if you become an elder of a church and now you're in charge of a, a people under God and you say, well, what's my basis for ruling and deciding and where are we going to go? Well, this is the rule book. It's God's law. It's the New Testament. It's, it's ecclesiology. So, when Solomon becomes king, I want to read this to you. Psalm, I'm sorry, everything is Psalms this morning. 1 Kings 2 verses 1 to 4. I want you to hear this. When David's time to die drew near, David was Solomon's father. And he was going to hand the throne off to his son. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God. Listen to this walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, so that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, so that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel. David had received a promise that there would always be somebody to sit on his throne if his sons were faithful in keeping the law. So two things on that. The basis of ruling was God's revealed law. It's not, it's not some code of ethics that was arbitrary or shifted from culture to culture. God said, if you want to rule, you do it through my law. The law is the voice of jurisdiction. The law goes as far as jurisdiction goes, right? We have extradition laws in place in countries because we won't extradite somebody in Canada to a place where their law is, is immoral or wrong. It's very unlikely that somebody here who committed the crime of, say, blasphemy in Iran, it's very unlikely that we would extradite that person to Iran because we would fear that they are not going to receive justice according to God's word. At least I would hope that. Maybe I say that naively. But the law is the voice and it is the distance of jurisdiction. We read this morning Psalm 47. What is God's jurisdiction? Everything. 
the whole earth. The whole earth is God's jurisdiction. Okay, and it's not just, just inside the church. Or it's not just the people living in the Near East. God's jurisdiction is the whole earth. And so Solomon had a very important job that to rule God's people, you had to apply God's law and you were to be as a refuge to other nations, to sojourners fleeing persecution or fleeing um, immorality. God's nation was meant to be a refuge to those peoples as a light to the nations. Now, the promise was you will always have a man to sit on your throne if you follow my law, if your sons keep my law. How did Solomon's sons do in doing that? Was there success? Not, Not, there was never success. David failed horribly in keeping the law. And so how did God keep his promise? God sent his own son. God sent his son as a man just like Solomon, yet also as God himself. Another interesting part about Israel was that when they uh, were being led by judges, they also had a prophet named Samuel. And they said, they looked around, they said, hey, all these other nations have kings. But we don't have a king. We don't look like the other nations. We don't look big and tough because we don't have a king. And Samuel warned them. He said, don't go looking for a king because if you get a king, he will spend your money, he will conscript your men to fight his wars, and he will abuse his power. That's what, a man, that's what an earthly king will do, guys. Like, you're welcome to have it, but what you want is God as your king. And they said, no, give us a king. And so they got Saul. Interestingly enough, when Christ came, he did not only come as a man, he came as a king whose kingdom is not of this world, as he said to Pilate, and he also came as God. He became, as, he became to his people the marriage, the unifying of those two realities that at once were separate, a king or God. Jesus came to be the divine king. He's the fulfillment of those two realities that man so desperately needed. And so God warns uh, Solomon through David, don't turn away from the law. Uh, uphold this. Don't reject it. And the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs then, is Solomon expounding and teaching and applying the law of God to his sons who would one day rule. Okay, his sons who would one day rule. Now we know that the sons of Israel are not just sons by blood, but we have been made sons of Israel through Jesus Christ, right? He has brought us in, grafted us into the kingdom. And God in his new covenant, his new kingdom, has established the fulfillment of the law. He has fulfilled the law that Solomon was told to fulfill through Christ. Through Jesus Christ alone. Not through any earthly king, but Christ is the fulfillment and the satisfaction of the law. And then when Christ went up to heaven, what happened to us? First Peter tells us that he made us a kingdom of priests. He made us a kingdom of priests. In other words, he made us an extension of his ministry. We're going to talk about this a lot more next week. Revelation chapter 5 verse 10 says, He caused us to rule on the earth. Us, not just him. God extends and mediates the rule of Jesus Christ through the people of Jesus Christ. The Proverbs then are a guidebook for the Christian people to rule well in the spheres in which we've been entrusted Our pursuit of wisdom is to apply the law of God in every particular area of life to extend the reign of Christ 
and to ask the question, what does God's wisdom intend to accomplish? What is the ministry of wisdom? What should be the children of what we do? What should be the outcome of how we live and what we preach? What is the ministry of wisdom as God's agency on the earth? And so we are called to the book of Proverbs to say, not that we can fulfill it perfectly, but to recognize that in Jesus, every word was fulfilled and that as we abide in him, we will bear fruit. We will bear fruit of obedience. We will bear fruit of wisdom. We will bear fruit of wise living. So that sets up our text. Four areas, four things that I want to show you that wisdom accomplishes in his people. And as the word goes out to the lost world, what takes place? What kind of transformation, what kind of new life happens in the lost and in us as we pursue Christ as the embodiment of wisdom? Number one, wisdom brings together instead of isolates. That jumps right off the page at us. 18 verse 1. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only expressing his opinion. When wickedness comes, contempt comes also, and with dishonor comes disgrace. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters, and the fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. What is the first declaration of wisdom? That a man who lives, or a woman who lives in isolation is broken off from, is disconnected from the people of God, is disconnected from the covenant of God's people. Why? Because he seeks his own desire. It says right there, he seeks his own desire and he breaks out, he rejects sound judgment. In the last 50 years, our culture has been making some baby steps, some giant steps in a march away from God. We're... We're, on a, we're in a parade right now. We're on a float right now, which is marching steadily away from God. Not we, the church, but I'm saying in the country in which we live, that's what's happening. There is a marked departure from the things of God. And that's, that's undeniable. But, but what do we do about it? We need to observe and apply God's law where we see the effects of that departure. One of the most stark and tragic effects of this departure from God is the isolation of man. Sheer individualism. One of the saddest and most difficult realities for humanity to deal with. And as we depart from God, we also depart from each other. Those two things go hand in hand according to the words of wisdom. We've become insulated against each other's challenges and against the opinions of others. In fact, some people who even isolate themselves from the church will often live in kind of an isolated way and and their exposure to books and YouTube videos and preachers, they, they filter it all through themselves. And we come up against other Christians who might challenge us and who have, other, who have real brains that we might have to interact with. And sometimes that's very upsetting. And yet God's, God's word and God's wisdom brings people together where we're not protected from being challenged. We're not protected from being um, corrected by each other. Pastors included. Okay, that's why, that's why I don't stay at home and just preach like Facebook Live to you. That would be a lot easier. I'd sip my coffee and I w- you would never be able to see me with my kids. You would never be able to see how I treat Shannon. I would never have to face any criticism from any of you. But God says, no, you all need to be together. You all need to be together. Um, and so foolish isolates because that's how you go on without interference. A foolish person 
Maybe they know they're acting foolishly, but they're doing it for their own desire. They're doing it because it feels good. Doing it because it's easy. It's indulgent. And so you know, if you're living in a society or a community that looks down on the things you're doing to get your pleasures, you're going to say, I'm going to spend less time with them because they're, all, they're just, just going to judge me. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that I should do this or that differently. And so guess what happens? Isolation. Isolation. You insulate yourself from anybody who's going to challenge your way and then you're just going to go on in self-governing. The rejection of God is to, is to reject somebody else ruling over you. And so the fool says, not only do I not want God ruling over me, I don't even want God working through people to influence me. I just want to do my own thing. It says that a fool takes no pleasure in understanding. You know why? Because understanding takes interaction. Understanding takes a little bit of talking. It takes a little bit of thought. It takes a little bit of hard conversation and patience. It takes those things. But a fool says, I don't have time for these people who disagree with me. I don't have time for that. I just want to tell you my opinion. A fool takes only pleasure in expressing his own opinion. Understanding takes time and thought and patience, whereas expression only takes a Twitter account or a Facebook post or some tirade that you go off and you don't hear any interaction. With wickedness comes contempt. You know what contempt is? Contempt, one of the ways we use it in a legal world is uh, showing a contempt of court or contempt of the law, which means that if you're called into court, maybe you don't show up, maybe you don't answer questions, maybe you don't cooperate. It's to show disregard for things that are thought to be important. With wickedness comes contempt. And so a person in isolation builds up in themselves a contempt for that which is precious, a contempt for that which matters, a contempt for God's ways. It becomes harder and harder and harder to reach somebody who lives in isolation because contempt builds up. Contempt. You can't even convince somebody of the importance of God or his ways because they've lived in isolation. They've served themselves. John's gospel tells us that Christ was the light of the world and when he came... The darkness hated the light because the darkness was exposed. The light came and exposed their dark deeds. And that's why even from day one, Christ was hated by many. Because they were fools living in isolation from God. I don't want anybody to challenge me. God's people rather are called into light, into a community, out of self-fulfilling isolation. And that's one of the worst lies that our culture, I think, is telling our young people is that Their path to happiness and freedom is to define themselves, is to live without regard to any reference outside of themselves. You define who you are. And yet young people are are suffering from depression and um, from anxiety because they're they're realizing that there's no joy in self-fulfillment. There is joy in being named by God. When God created everything, he named everything. That's That's... That's the dictates of somebody who is an owner. When Wynne draws a picture, she tells me what it is because she made it. doesn't matter if it doesn't look like it. When God is in charge, he names and he classifies the things that he made. And in that, there is joy. We talked about that more last week. And so we express God's reign in the world. We express God's authority by the agency of wisdom, by rejecting our desire for isolation, by rejecting our desire for self-fulfillment, and to intentionally get in each other's lives. That's why church is and becomes the metaphor for life. 
That's why gathering together is so critical because it literally pushes back against the, the desires of foolishness, which creep up in me all the time. Do you ever just wake up and say, the last thing I, I want to do today is face anybody who's a Christian? It's not because you don't like Christians or you don't like Jesus. It's because you feel that sinful desire welling up in you that I just want to live my way and I don't want to face anybody who's going to make me feel awkward about that. That happens in my heart. And so the gathering of church is a continual softening of our sinful nature. And it's so good. And God works through that. Um, So that's why the church is a physically gathered institution. Interesting to observe. If you drive down the street in Mississauga or some places in Ottawa, you'll see a mosque, other types of temples, right? Those are places that pretty much have the doors open all the time. They don't have, in general... They don't have gathered assemblies. It's a place where you can go and worship individually. The church is not like that. We don't have an open building where you can just come to the altar by yourself and just do your business with God. We say at 10 o'clock, we're getting together. If you come at noon, you might get a coffee and a cookie, but you've missed out on the gathering of God's people. Okay? That's why we set a time and a place because God's people being together for the common purpose that is the means of breaking, out, breaking us out of the foolish desire for isolation. That's the ministry of wisdom. That's the accomplishment of wisdom. It's the bringing together of people. Sin scatters and isolates. Righteousness brings together and unifies. Number two, wisdom is security over survival. Wisdom is security over survival. And I don't mean survival like getting through life. I mean survival like holding your fists up and constantly being on guard. Look at the text. It is not good to be partial to the wicked or deprive the righteous of justice. Verse 6 gets into this a bit more. A, A fool's lips walk into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. A fool's mouth is his ruin and his lips are a snare to his soul. And it talks about his diet. The words of a whisperer like delicious morsels. They go down to the innermost parts of the body. Wisdom is security over survival. So there you have the fool in survival mode constantly watching over his back because of the amount of people who hate him because of the way he talks. But verse 10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and he's safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. The fool in his constant talking and and yapping on and expressing his own opinion for its own sake, eventually, correction and interaction with him proves futile, right? And so people want to trade up for bigger weapons, trade up for a more persuasive um, interaction. This is why a fool's lips invite a beating because eventually people grow tired of trying to speak with a fool who won't listen. I'm not advocating violence, but I'm saying people who get to that point start to think, is there any way to make this person be quiet? They invite a beating. Proverbs 17.10 says that the word of rebuke goes deeper into a man understanding than a hundred blows to a fool. That's why I'm not advocating violence, because a fool, you could beat him into the ground and will not change him. You know why? Because a rebuke goes into a man of understanding. If a man will not listen to a rebuke, then he will not listen to a punch. So don't punch people who are dumb and foolish. Please don't. 
It will not achieve the righteousness of God. So the fool in his isolation, the fool in his isolation is unable to relate to others and that's why he lives life on the run. A fool who lives in isolation, this is why his lips are continually inviting a beating because he has no way of interacting with people. He has no understanding of what other people are going through because he's an isolationist. Do you see how the thread is tied together here? The fool speaks words that nobody wants to listen to. And he lives life on the run from one temporary relationship to another until people get tired of him, never humbling him or herself. Their soul is ensnared. Their life is in ruin. Wisdom, on the contrary, is a babbling brook. It's a, it's a, it's a continually refreshing source of truth. That's the contrast between a fool and the righteous. The righteous have something good to say, have something to offer their peers. Not because they're so great, but because they live life in harmony with them and they interact with them and they understand what you're going through and they seek God's word and they have a word ready to speak in season. And so the fool, because he does not have wisdom, he does not have people, he does not have God, what does he look to for security? Wealth. He, he creates an imaginary world where money protects him from all the things that make him unhappy and, uns- and unsafe. Has money ever proven in the history of mankind to be a preserver of life? No. It usually makes you a target, especially in countries with less rule of law than Canada. But the point is that in his mind, his wealth is the only thing he can turn to because wealth is not a person that he can so aggravate that they desert him. Money, thankfully, does not have ears for the foolish person. It's the one thing he can hold close to himself and hoard all he wants. Money will never challenge your convictions. Money will never challenge your authority. Money will never challenge your morality. It will just be there. And so it's so good, so secure for that fool. It's a high wall in his imagination, giving him no protection in the real world, no security in the real world. But what does the righteous do? They hear God's name and they abandon any sense of security anywhere else. They run into God's tower and they say, in here will I dwell. I would rather be a doorman in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of the wicked, the Psalms say. That's all I'm going to say about that. Real security comes through God alone. Foolishness looks at all the temporary and imaginary ways Um, that we can get through life and none of them last. They live life on the run. They look for security in places where it will not be found. Number three, wisdom is sound judgment. I love this section. This might be one of the most important things that we get as a church. Verse 13, if anyone answers before he hears, it is folly and shame. An intelligent heart down in verse 15 acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before the great. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and explains or examines him. Isn't that interesting? There's all this whole discourse about mediating conflict. But that never, we never deal with that, right? We never have to deal with a, a mother-in-law and a daughter or between two siblings between people in the church. We never have to mediate conflict, right? Proverbs say that it is shameful to speak before listening. So 
Listen first, speak after. Remember, this is the ministry of wisdom. This is what wisdom accomplishes in God's people. Love this verse in James chapter one. It says, um, know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Even God demonstrates this. When, when Adam and Eve sinned against him, after they ate the fruit and after they rejected God's authority, God came walking through the garden. And what did he say to Adam? Adam, where are you? I mean, if, if there's anybody who doesn't need to ask questions, it's God. He knew where Adam was. He knew what Adam did. But what does he do first? He seeks knowledge. Not that he didn't know, but he wants to ask. And in fact, this happened last night where Wynne did something that I, she did something inappropriate, but I thought she did something more inappropriate. So instead of disciplining the thing that I thought was more inappropriate, I decided I'm going to hear in her own words what happened. And she was ashamed of what she had done, but it wasn't what I thought. And so the discipline was totally different. And I thought, I'm so, I was so protected there from such a moment of foolishness, punishing something that I didn't even know was the case. And God even does this. He asks first, Adam, where are you? After Cain kills Abel, what does he say? Cain, where's your brother? Where's your brother? God has this approach where he seeks knowledge before he issues judgment. And he said, the blood of your brother cries out against you. He knew the truth, but he had asked him first. Even Jesus, when he meets the woman at the well, he asks questions. When the woman is caught in adultery, Jesus asks questions before issuing judgment. Maybe this is something we need to take into consideration. We often stand between quarreling people. We often stand as quarrelers ourselves. What is the way back to peace? Is it shouting louder? Is it being more accurate in our arguments? Or is it first listening? The passage also says it's, it's not good to deprive the righteous of justice or to be partial to the wicked. You know how that happens? When we don't take the time to hear all sides. We make a judgment based on emotion. We, be, we make a judgment based on our loyalty. Who do I like better? Who scratched my back in the past? I need to, be on, I need to, be, I need to back them on this because of what happened earlier. Are we partial because of sinful or personal reasons? Or do we uphold justice? Even if it's a person who we think does not deserve it or we don't like, we don't want to see them vindicated. And yet if true is truth, it's our, it's our duty to uphold fair outcomes, just outcomes, not to show partiality. This is one of the greatest needs in our time. One of the greatest needs in our time. Because so often deals are done in back rooms People are let off the hook for different reasons that have nothing to do with justice. My friends, I think this is one of our cultural blind spots where we as the church are so afraid of judging, making any opinion about something because we're so afraid to be called proud or dogmatic. I'm not advocating pride. I'm not advocating poor moral character. But hear this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 for the church. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? 
And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you bring them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is none wise among you who can settle a dispute between brothers? Are there none wise among you, church? There are. Friends, God has given us his wisdom. God has charged us inside the church to be arbiters of justice and righteousness, to advocate for those who have no voice, to speak the truth where it's not popular to be heard. That is our job. It's not the job of judges and politicians and community leaders. It's the job of the church to be the voice of truth, regardless of where it leads. Christ himself in John chapter 8 said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Truth is not something to be afraid of. The truth is not something to hide on. The truth is not something to be afraid of using, friends. Oh, of course we need to speak the truth in love. Of course love is a necessity. I was good at speaking the truth as a jerk when I was in my late teens and early 20s, but God got a hold of me, and I hope I'm more loving now as I speak the truth. But there's never an excuse for the church to sit on its hands. Never an excuse for the church to hide or bury the truth. It's our job, according to Proverbs chapter 18, to hear both sides, not to be gullible, not to hear one side and make a rash judgment. We're so good at this in the church. Somebody comes to us and says, can you believe what so-and-so said to me? Can you believe what I saw them doing in cafe after church? Can you believe where I saw them go? And we say, oh, I, I got to deal with this. We don't hear the other side. That's foolishness. Because here's the thing, if we are to be a prophetic voice to the world, if we want to look at Supreme Court cases and say, how can you, I can see so clearly that that's wrong. And yet in our own churches, we're not hold, upholding, as Paul says, trivial matters. If trivial matters are not dealt with, with truth and justice, we have no standing to comment on the Supreme Court or the Parliament or any other thing. God has given us wisdom here and now inside the church to deal with things in a way that is true. Again, isolation is the enemy of that, isn't it? God has called his people together to work on this together. No one person, not the pastor, not the elder, not anybody, one other person is the sole means of wisdom in the church. That's why elders are led by, churches are led by multitude of elders, not one person. Anyway, digression over. Wisdom is sound judgment though. Wow, look at the offended brother. <laughs> We're not quite done with this picture. A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city and quarreling like the bars of a castle. Do you ever have that person or see that person who's just, you have no, uh, un, no clue how to approach them. A brother offended is like an unyielding city, like a strong city with towers and weapons and there's no way to approach them. It's discouraging, right? Brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city. What does the Proverbs tell you to do? Don't abandon wisdom. Listen. Speak truth. Speak gently. Because in doing so, you're doing all you're called to do. It's not your job to fix other people. It's not your job to be the final arbiter of the world in, 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 this, in this lifetime. We will judge the world in the future, the Bible promises. But as for now, all you can do is present Christ. All you can do is speak the truth Speak gently and speak in love. That is our calling as Christians. 
even with the, un, the unyielding brother who's offended. Wisdom is still the answer. There's not a plan B in God's book for dealing with different types of people or different um, types of conflicts. Last, wisdom is companionship. And this is very amazing because it ties the beginning statements of the book in with the end. Last three verses. He who finds a good, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. The poor use entreaties, but the rich answers roughly. And a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So you can see the first sentence and the last sentence pair together. A man who lives in isolation seeks his own desire. But the alternative is not unscrupulous popularity. The alternative to isolation is not to just be the most popular guy around. That's not the alternative to isolation. He's saying, and this is, this is one of the great themes of the Proverbs, is that there is, there is a tension between two realities all the time. Wisdom is not necessarily always, this is what you do in every single situation. Wisdom holds tension. Don't be in isolation, but don't have a thousand friends either. That's a risk too. That's not the alternative to isolation. It's not bad to have a lot of friends. The Proverbs writer doesn't say, you will come to ruin. He says, a man of many companions may come to ruin. There's a higher risk of that because there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. He also says that a wife is a good thing. He who finds a wife finds favor with the Lord and obtains a good thing. He's speaking about true companionship. True companionship. Now, this is not, oh, I don't have companionship if I don't have a spouse. Not so, because there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. He's talking about companionship. He's talking about the opposite and the, the restitution of isolation. The solution to isolation is companionship. Marriage, I hope this doesn't need to be said, but I'll say it. Marriage is not a curse or a sentence of some kind. I, I, it's, it's very blessed, Dustin. I've heard some people say, um, marriage isn't ma- meant to make you happy. It's meant to make you holy. It does make you holy, but it should also make you happy. He who finds a wife obtains favor from the Lord. It's companionship. It's companionship. In a marriage, there should be an essence where inside your marriage, isolation is destructive as well. Because even in our marriages, we can isolate, right? We don't want to hear. We don't want somebody to call us out. We don't, and our wives or our husbands often know us best and can speak the the most difficult truth into our life because they know us the best and we need to be open to that. That's what marriage is for. That's the holy part. Your wife or your husband is given to you as a tool to sharpen you. So don't spurn because sometimes we know the worst about our spouse as well. We don't want to accept correction from them. I'll accept correction from somebody who I don't know their faults because then I can pretend to respect them. But a wife or a husband is often the most um, able person to speak into our hearts Companionship brings us closer, not only to each other, but to God as a useful means for correcting and drawing us nearer to the Lord. And again, for the person, for the person who doesn't have a wife or a a husband, there is a friend who sticks closer to a brother. So in the multitude of friends, and this is one of the biggest problems in our world today too, is that people have a thousand Facebook friends, friends, but when they throw a birthday party, nobody shows up. What, is that companionship? 
We have replaced popularity for companionship. And God's word and wisdom says, watch out for that. Seek companionship. Seek the person who sticks closer than a brother. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all times. Check this out. A brother is born for adversity. Often, too, we go through hard things. That's when we least reach out to people, right? We don't want to drag them into We're so Canadian. Get over that. A brother is born for adversity. If you're going through a tough time, reach out to somebody in the church. Reach out to a friend. Lean on them. You know why? Because the tables will turn one day. Tables will turn one day and, they will, and you will be needed by them. What a blessing to be in the family of God. To have a brother, a friend who sticks closer than, than even family. So as we conclude Proverbs, we need to be reminded that in the narrative, the young man walking down the street towards the house of the forbidden woman, do you remember that? The fool who lives in isolation, the wicked who steals and lies, that was us. We are the fool in the book of Proverbs. We are the fool in the book of Proverbs as we read through. That's not meant to discourage you. It's meant to cause you to turn your eyes to the wise man who's Christ. Proverbs, uh, sorry, Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ does not look around looking for the person who best exemplifies the Proverbs to save. Oh, look at Joe Blow. They're doing pretty good on chapter 18. I think we'll go down and save that person. The person who cast themselves on the mercy of Christ saying, I am a failure. I have blown it with the law of God. I have not kept it. I was like Solomon. Solomon blew it in the end, by the way. Saul blew it. David blew it. The sons of Solomon blew it. Israel blew it. The Pharisees blew it. The apostles blew it. We blew it. We are the fools in the book of Proverbs. The Proverbs are to turn our eyes to the great law keeper, the wise son, the good father, the hard worker, Jesus Christ. I want to read to you Romans, a, a bigger section from Romans chapter 5, 12 to 17. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there was no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who is to come. Who's the one to come? But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. That's a dense sentence, but I'm going to read it one more time. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. In other words, Jesus came and succeeded where Adam failed. He succeeded where Solomon failed. He succeeded where we failed. And that free gift of life abounds to many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. 
For the judgment following one trespass brought, brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of the one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Meaning, through our many sins, the grace of God has come to us. And because death reigned through Adam's sin, so we will reign in life through the gift of life, which is in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the perfect exposition of the law. He is the perfect embodiment of the law. He is the perfect fulfiller and keeper of God's law. This is the good news that the Proverbs brings us. That the life of reward, peace, truth, and justice, and equity has been realized and that kingdom has been launched. That kingdom has begun at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. A kingdom based on true righteousness under the leadership of the true king. And as we abide in this king, as we abide in this vine, we will bear much fruit. We will be those who reign on earth, who rule on the earth through Jesus Christ. And his kingdom will advance as we seek him, as we humble ourselves to him, as we gather as the church. This is the message of Proverbs. That as we reject foolishness that encroaches on us through the strength that Jesus Christ supplies, he will continue to strengthen us as his people to rule and reign on the earth. This should be best represented right here inside the church. We are the declaration of God's ways. We are the declaration and the revelation of his intentions, his law in the natural and the divine order of life in us. We are governed by the written word, make no mistake. We are not the word of God to people, but we are the demonstration. We are the vindication of wisdom. When the world looks at us and says, why do you believe the Bible? They should look no further than our lives. That's why. That is why because our lives are transformed by him. This is how wisdom changes us through Christ. And this is how wisdom will change the culture. It begins with the community of God and it ends with the great commission, the expansion of this to all nations.